Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our Advent series. Advent is not merely a time where we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, but rather a moment where we eagerly anticipate the return of our King. This series aims to use the Old Testament prophecies to remind us of the good news of not only Jesus' birth, but His reign and the moment He'll come again. To find out more about our Christmas services, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. But for now, enjoy the message. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to 15. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can all sit down. I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much, Lara. Uh, yeah, thanks be to God. How are we all doing? Are we well? Well, it feels like a full house for a Christmas service. Uh, look, I want to uh, just acknowledge the pink elephant in the room. Uh, yesterday, I was up on the Sunshine Coast. I spent time with my two-year-old niece, and I was so concerned about her son's safety that I did not concern myself with my own, and this is at the end product. And quite frankly, I have no regrets. It was a blast. Uh, we went swimming at the beach. It was awesome. Uh, look, uh, I want to kick off today with a, a bit of a story. Uh, it was 2018, early December, BC, before COVID, uh, if you can think back. Uh, I was backpacking, traveling, I was on holiday, I was trying to see as much as I could of the States with a very, very slim budget. I think I budgeted myself about $20 a day for food, which if you think of that, including tips, that's like one decent meal, two not half bad meals, and three pretty terrible meals. And so 20 bucks, crashing on couches, finding friends of friends who didn't seem like uh, they were too, um, yeah, trying to pick up backpackers for the wrong reasons. Anyway, uh, Anyway, crashed in this hotel, got into a place called Dallas, Texas, uh, a city full of history, full of uh, culture. And I get up first thing in the morning, I'm like, all right, let's hit the city. I've got 20 bucks to eat. Let's go with the three 
uh, meal option so that I can sustain myself as I go plodding around this city, pretending I know what I'm going, going to, pretending I don't look like an absolute tourist with a massive backpack on my back. And anyway, find myself uh, at this very small diner, middle of nowhere, still in downtown Dallas. Uh, managed to get myself a bagel and a coffee, which if you know American coffee, it was terrible, but it was warm, and it was going to sustain me with caffeine for around about $6 plus a tip. I kept forgetting about the tips. I felt terrible when they gave uh, me this face of, hey, you didn't actually pay me the full thing. Uh, so anyway, I'm smashing away at this bagel and this coffee, and trying to think about the day, trying to go to, I'll go to this museum, I'll go to this art gallery, I'll go see this, all these sort of things that I want to go check out. And out of nowhere, within the diner, I hear this horn blowing outside. There is like this orchestra of sound coming from outside the street. And to be honest, I'll be really frank with you guys, my Christian imagination is going off at this point. I'm like, this is it. 2018, the year of our Lord, he has finally come back. Do I just get up on the chair and start doing a sermon? What do we do? Do we start asking people to put their hands up? Because uh, all this diner stuff, they're rushing to the window to see what the heck is going on. And so I decide I'll grab everything that I could, grab a half-eaten bagel, grab my terrible coffee, run outside, only to find that there was a marching band on that day that I'd arrived in Dallas. There was uh, full orchestras going down the street. It was just insane. But isn't that the nature of Christmas, right? It comes all of a sudden out of nowhere. It sort of is semi-obnoxious in how it toots its own horn. Uh, the movies that we watch, we once thought were cheesy, but round about December time, we're okay with. Uh, is, you know, is our protagonist really going to find the love of her life whilst working in retail on Christmas Eve? Chances aren't high. Is that small child, Macaulay Culkin, really going to defend his house from two burglars uh, and them not sue him afterwards? Because if, anyway, I'd be straight to the cops. There's something about Christmas that makes us put aside our skepticism, put aside our cynicism and wonder why. And this with this crashing tone does Isaiah come about with his word. Because the thing about these two passages that we've just read, they're in different contexts and that they share in their message. To Isaiah, it is a bunch of people who have walked away from God, fallen away from what their covenant promise was to him, living in unrighteousness, on the verge of being exiled. And yet in Matthew... It is to a humble people under the oppressive boot of Roman rule. And yet God's response is the same. I will be near. I will draw close to you. Love is on the way. And as I was thinking this week, just on this topic of love, as Alex pointed out, that's what we'll be talking about tonight. I realized that love is one of those things that we probably often talk around, but we rarely talk about. Uh, the Beatles said, love is all you need. The Black Eyed Peas, this might age me a little bit, they're still looking where it is. Uh, but there's a bunch of different definitions. The Greeks had multiple words for the word love. Uh, the love I have for my wife is different from the love I have for tiramisu. The love that I have for my wife would mean I lay my life down for her. That my love for tiramisu would mean, well, it depends on the tiramisu. But there are different ways of talking about love. But for the Christian story... Love is not marginal. It's not on the peripheral. 
In fact, it's central. The Christian story would say it's actually fundamental. That in the beginning, before anything was, love existed. In that beautiful divine dance we call the Trinity, that complexity, love exists there. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and loves the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. I hope I got that all right. That was really heavy. But this is the beginning of things. It's not something on the side. Love is not something God has. Love is something God is. And from creation to redemption, the story of the Scriptures of God's love for his people. He does not create because he needs to. He does not create because he's lonely. He does not create because he needs us. He creates because he loves. And out of that fountainhead comes creation. And so today as we talk about this and explore particularly the passage of Isaiah, I want us to talk about two different things. The coming of Jesus shows us God's love. The coming of Jesus invites us into God's love. These two things I want us to talk about today, looking at that passage in Isaiah. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, that divine dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we want to be known by you. And so we ask, come Holy Spirit, be present in our midst. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, where we may approach Christmas with cynicism or a sense of apathy or thinking it's just some big marketing scheme, Lord, let us see Jesus behind it all, the one from whom comes from love and invites us into it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to jump to Isaiah 7. This is purely so you can see what I'm seeing in the text, and so vice versa. Uh, Open up your tablet. Uh, I love saying that. I don't imagine Moses would have ever thought we'd be saying, open your tablet up in church. He had a different idea in mind. And I want us to explore this uh, chapter together, or these couple of passages. Uh, And just reading it as prophetic literature in the Old Testament. See, I find that often when it comes to the prophets, we're like, take a snippet out, we'll paste that here, especially around Christmas time, right? All over your cards, there'll be like this passage here, passage here. But like, if we ever tried to read around that, we would be like distressed, you know, this nation's gonna burn, this nation's in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I think that there's two sort of extremes in looking at the prophetic literature that we find in the Old Testament that are quite unhelpful. And we're quite probably would lean towards within our own culture. If I can have that slide up, James, that'd be awesome. And so on one extreme, you've got the more materialist view, right? You've got the view in which, well, it's purely uh, people like Isaiah, they're just, it's a guessing game. There is no supernatural input or spiritual input going on when he's writing that text. That if he does get something right, if he does seem to foretell the future, then he's either got a really good guess or it's just been later ascribed. But then on the other side, we've got the supra-spiritual. I literally just came up with that word this week. Uh, It's not a typo, but it's the the view in which uh, people like Isaiah, 
when they're going to write the scriptures, their eyes roll to the back of their heads, they have go into this trance, start scrolling, someone puts a piece of paper underneath them, and what they write down just somehow turns out to be the book of Isaiah, and everyone goes, wow. But the problem is, with this first view, I was going to do up a table, but I couldn't compete with Pastor Alex when it comes to tables, so we've got a spectrum instead. But the problem with this materialist view is one, it just doesn't make sense of the dating that we have for these books, that they're written hundreds of years before the guessing, the events that they're guessing about take place. But also they overemphasize just the reality and the context. And vice versa, when it comes to the supra-spiritual view, it overemphasizes to a place in which we think every single verse and line that people like Isaiah wrote, they must have a meaning, a secret meaning that we've got to uncover, transfer into numbers and read it backwards with the light half on, under the full moon, that sort of thing. And it underplays the cultural, theological, societal context which Isaiah's living in. But what I think is a better way of when we're reading this text is to say, well, I think the Spirit of God has inspired something on it, because the datings that we have come around about 800 years uh, before the events that occur, especially when it comes to Jesus. But also, Isaiah is very familiar with his story, with the story of Israel, with the story of the Old Testament leading up to this point. Uh, And we'll see that Isaiah is, when he writes verses 14 and 15, that he's almost playing this theological jazz in which he's pulling these strings from all over the Old Testament and saying, look, look at this man who is coming. Look at the Messiah. I'm going to pull from this thread, this thread, and this thread. And so let's look at verse 14 together. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, the virgin birth, I feel like, is one of those elephants in the room when it comes to uh, church theology, right? You probably heard it once, like in a song. We read it once in an Apostles' Creed one time, and we just kind of, yeah, 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 let's, that's just a bit of an awkward miracle that we've just kind of put in the back seat somewhere. But I actually think it's really beautiful. It's this unusual, miraculous event that Isaiah says, this will be a signpost for how you know the Messiah has come. He will be born of a virgin. The other day, I was chatting to a mate of mine who's looking to get married soon, and he's like, dude, what's your advice? And, you know, you do the obvious, mate, find yourself in a church, uh, get good friends around you, do that whole journey in community, etc., etc. But then I remembered one of the key ones that is in most premarital counseling, right? This idea of lineage, of genealogy, that all of us are arriving to our wedding day, bringing stuff to the table we either don't know about or don't necessarily like. Uh, The way that we do the dishes, whether we rinse before we stack the dishwasher, whether we separate our darks and our whites when it comes to the washing machine, these kind of things. But we also bring baggage with us that are far darker and more sinister than that. Proclivities, ways in which we see or act or do and behave that we've inherited. And that's not to say that we're not completely involved, that we have no part in that, but we bring that to the table. None of us uh, come out of nowhere. And the thing about the virgin birth 
is because Jesus comes from a new genealogy, a new lineage, comes, is conceived by the Spirit, that means he no longer has the baggage that we have. That the things that may make us think, I don't know if I can trust you in this area. I don't know if I can trust you about this. They're non-existent when it comes to Jesus. Why? Because he's part of a new creation. He's part of something new. The sense that even the closest to us at some point will, not, will let us down cannot be found in Jesus. Why? Because he's coming from a new lineage for you and I. And you might say, well, look, James, I'm maybe checking out church, checking out Christianity, virgin birth, bit of a crazy claim, mate. Either it was just something that only ancient people could believe in a previous age, or it's just an allegory. And I'd want to maybe say two comments towards that. Uh, Look, the first one would be, in regards to the first or the former, is just because these people lived prior to the scientific revolution doesn't mean they didn't know how the natural world worked. Just because these people lived prior to the scientific revolution doesn't mean they didn't know how the natural world worked. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the case of Joseph. His, his soon-to-be wife comes to him and says, hey, an angel approached me, apparently God's going to make me pregnant, and that's the story, mate. He freaks out, rightly so. Why? Because he knows the natural order of things. He knows how things usually work. Think of the story of Moses. He approaches a burning bush. It's not unusual to find a burning bush in the middle of the desert. What is weird is that it's not consumed. It doesn't just turn to ash, it keeps burning. These people within the scriptures, we can't just shovel off to the side and say, oh, well, that was all well and good for now. We're now in the modern age and we don't believe in these sort of things. In fact, I would want to argue that the natural world and our understanding of the natural world provides the backdrop in which we can see the hand of the supernatural at work. That is only because... Joseph knows where babies come from, if we're allowed to say that in church, that he can say a miracle has taken place here, something supernatural, because he knows what the natural order is, and it seems like someone has come through the other side or monkeyed with it. And the second thing I'd say is, if we were just to say it's allegorical, right? Just to say it's merely a metaphor. Well, one, I don't think that... I would want to ask you where that comes from, that idea. Because for one, it doesn't come from the text. The gospel writers, they were quite clear. Uh, they were trying to write history. And that is showcased in a certain way, absolutely, but they understood the events they were writing were history. And I just think that if we believe that God was about doing this in the virgin birth, that he created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo, as theologians have described, then putting a baby in a woman's womb is not a big deal. If the universe came from when he spoke, then a new creation, a new person on the way, is not a big deal for him. And so they're just a couple of thoughts. But this lineage, this idea that Jesus comes from a, a new lineage is beautiful. It says that he comes from a place of love, not from a place tarnished by sin. 
both what makes us up, you know, psychologists will debate whether it's nature or nurture. The Christian story would say both our nature is corrupted by sin, but also nature is corrupted by, did I say it right? No, I didn't. Nature is corrupted by sin, but also nurture is corrupted by sin. And yet Jesus comes along untarnished, revealing God's love to us, that he has come from the triune one. And later we'll see, invites us into it. Paul the Apostle reflects on this new lineage like this. It says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in their life through one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus offers us a new lineage. Just as one brought sin of our true father, Adam, so now Jesus steps into our world. Isaiah looking forward into history Looking, as Alex said last week, Isaiah is seeing what is blurred, but the gospel writers will see in HD. This is the kind of person who is on the way. The second thing I think Isaiah describes is a Messiah who will choose, and re- uh, choose what is right and reject evil in Isaiah 7.15. It's important to note that as um, we approach, look at something like Isaiah 15, that this idea of he knows enough to reject what is evil and choose what is right is a theme uh, and a narrative way of, uh, a narrative that is deployed throughout the Old Testament. And so we see Adam and Eve, they are tested in a certain way. They are tested by the tree of good and evil. We see Abraham before Pharaoh. We see Sarah promised with a lineage or offspring. We see David being called to defend Israel. All of them tested, all of them failing. And this is sort of a pattern within the Old Testament that Isaiah is calling the readers to have this tension about them. This Messiah who is on the way, will he choose what is good and not what is evil? Is he going to be like all the others and let us down? As Tim Mackey from the Bible Project write or said, The Old Testament is creating a glove that only Jesus' hand can fit. I remember when I finished my bachelor's, I worked as a journo for a little while. Uh, We were part of a team who helped get some of the national stories to more regional sites. A lot of fun uh, working in a newsroom. Um, Also just crazy, uh, (laughs) to be frank. And one of the things that you got to see over the months and years is the way in which cultural and societal capital is gained and waned, in which politicians either would deploy or lose some of their political capital because they want to deploy some of their policies, or they would gain it, or or in fact gain it through uh, some sort of ad campaign, or lose it again because of some mistake that they made somewhere that was probably caught on video. Likewise with actors and celebrities. They would market a movie one week, and then next thing you know, they've been caught on camera doing something embarrassing, and they would no longer have that cultural capital. And see, the thing about Jesus is, 
Well, the thing about these people is, is that each of them have a sell-by date. Each of them face the test, and each of us may face the test of whether we will choose what is good and not what is evil. And eventually, we come up short. Eventually, they come up short. Our leaders, those who we look up to and aspire to be like, come up short. And so when Isaiah is pushing them and saying, is this guy going to be good? Is the Messiah going to be like all the others? Isaiah is saying, no. All of them but one. All of them but Jesus. And the message that Jesus brings throughout his earthly ministry is he is the one who has faced the test so that we do not have to. While we may be part of a broken world with a messed up lineage, Jesus passes the test every time so that before God, he might be our representative, so that he can pass the test for us. And so we've looked at how the coming of Jesus shows us God's love, but what does it actually invite us into? What is it we're actually doing? Is it just merely speculation about an event that happened 2,000 years ago? Or does it have implications for me today? You see, so far we've talked about that love. And at this time of year, I know for me that I need to be reminded that the nativity is far less about that spectacle. That you and I are somehow invited into that divine love that Jesus comes from. If the band want to come up, that'd be awesome. And if I'm honest, both of these ideas, both the incarnation, God in flesh, the infinite walking among us, and the fact that we may be invited into this love, they are two things I would not believe without the Bible saying so. Because they are so profound. And they change everything. If in a broken and dire world, the God himself steps up on the scene, then I should pay attention. I should listen up. How does he respond? Is he going to fail the test? What is he, in fact, offering me? If he's inviting me into love that goes on before eternity, before I was ever around, before any of us were ever around, before creation itself, then that's amazing. Then that means that I can actually set my sights a little higher than what's around me. See, at Christmas time, what's that question we ask every child around Christmas time? All the parents would know it. What is it you want for Christmas, right? And that's usually, I've worked out that those Christmas lists or present lists are just a quick way in which you get to know what your kid wants for Christmas so you don't have to ask them later. And we don't ask that as adults, right? What is it you want for Christmas? And if we do, it's out of frustration. I can't think of anything adults are so hard to buy for. Uh, I know it's maybe a conversation in our house, but that's another sermon. What is it you want for Christmas? And the thing is, is that while the question might fizzle out the older we get, the desires don't. In fact, I think the desires go deeper. 
what is it that makes me, makes us want to see our dining room table full of family at Christmas time? What is it that makes people like John Lennon write, war is over around Christmas time? He's looking and reaching out for peace. This desire goes deeper the older we get, the more we realize what we need. That it's not just things under a tree, it's not just gifts beautifully wrapped, it's something more. And maybe one of those things is that we might be fully known and fully loved. Because to be known and not loved, that's debilitating. I'm seen for all that I am, and I'm still I'm rejected. There's no convincing, there's no haggling of that relationship. But to be unknown and loved, well, what's that really? And yet the message of Jesus is that he approaches us, comes near to us, a broken humanity, sees us as we are and loves us anyway. With all of our messed up genealogies of where we came from and what baggage we're bringing along with us, Jesus comes along and says, I love you anyway, both to the people in Isaiah, but also the people in Matthew people who are oppressing and those who are oppressed Jesus draws near and so today what do you think about when you think about Christmas is it the stress the desires the longings is it just the request that we might be too scared to actually utter Or is it upon Jesus, beholding Him, loving Him, standing in awe of Him, the God who has not only made Himself known, but now invites us in? Christmas is not merely a pleasant marketing campaign that has run through, somehow, through the church for centuries. Nor is it the celebration of a blind, toxic optimism that is just completely unaware of the pains of this world. No, Christmas is a God who sees us and loves us anyway, seeing us warts and all, and loves us anyway. And so as we wrap up and go into worship, Here's what I want to do. I just want you to behold Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of the wise men and the shepherds that approached a baby, God in flesh, and worshiped him. Stand in awe of where he comes from, that great triune love. Stand in awe of the fact that he has come near how Romans describes us? Enemies of God. (laughs) What kind of king lays his life down for his enemies? And then what love he draws us near with. I'd love to just wrap up or leave us with these lyrics from a, a recent Christmas hymn, which I just think is so beautiful. Talk about the paradox of Jesus. They say this, Come and stand amazed, you people. 
See how God is reconciled. See His plans of love accomplished. See this gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak and tender. See the Word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. Behold Him, friends. Behold Him. He has come near and He's invited us in. Let's pray. Gracious God, let us be in awe of a baby in a manger, the eternal one, the ancient of days, emptying himself and becoming one of flesh so that we might not only look vertically up to God, but we now look horizontally, that Jesus is our true and better brother, the one who came down for us, loves us, and now invites us in. Father, may we have reverence. May we have awe. May we not be struggled by the pains of this world. But Lord, let us see your goodness in the whisper of our prayers and in the loudness of our worship, Lord. May we seek you and find you, though you're not far from any one of us. Amen. Amen. Let's worship, church. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or connect with us through our Instagram or Facebook page. For more information about Christmas at New Life, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. We pray you have a great week and a very Merry Christmas. Be blessed.